0: This series of episodes goes out to Amy McKay, who reminded us that we are stronger together than we are apart. Really loopy. I had a little bit. So in preparation for this podcast, I um I did make tea and I put a little bit of mugwort in it because that's like a very witchy herb. And um, it also, though, whenever I have it, even though I had so little of it, it makes me a little loopy and i mean like everyone's trying to tell me their issues and i'm like bitch can you just queue up my drums?
1: welcome back to rebel girls book club i'm harmony and i'm maggie and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum bestsellers we've got you covered that one book from english class you hated while you read it but you can't forget we've got that too comic books nonfiction, it's all right here So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads.
0: We're going to be reading September 4th through September 18th of The Witches of New York. And this is The New Moon through The Waning Moon. And first, I know I can't see your cover anymore, but can you describe it for me? Like, what does it look like?
1: So it's... Do you want me to start with the image or the font or like what? (laughs) Start with the
0: image on the front.
1: So it's like a sepia toned background and there's a lady on it and she's got a mask over her eyes except for one eye is cut out and she's got very, very heavily red painted lips and like a very traditional hairstyle for the time. So it's like straight a little bit on top and then bam, intense curls and she's wearing, a black gown and she's sitting in front of um oh my god, what is it called? Like uh, a future reading glass orb thing. What are those called? Um Future Ball.
0: The future ball. <laughs> Let's just keep Yeah. She's just sitting in a
1: crystal ball. And she's holding something in her hand, but the font makes it kind of hard to see. And then, you know, it just says the witches of New York in like white cursive okay text. so we
0: do have the same covers i was curious about that that's very funny i think okay because so, yeah. it took me the second reading of this book to figure that out <laughs> oh i think we can assume from the cover that that's adelaide right
1: i didn't figure it out until the end but honestly when i read it i wasn't thinking that intensely about the cover at the time I was more interested in, like, the illustration slash design that went with the, um...
0: Yeah, those are cool, the illustrations. Do you mean, like, the moon, or do you have different... Yeah. Do you have different
1: illustrations? So I'm I'm assuming we're looking at the same, like, part dividers. I just like the design of the moon and, like, the black pages, and I just liked
0: it. And then, so, for what we're reading today we have the new moon to the waning moon. And I kind of wanted to see if you thought that was significant at all, other than the fact that we're reading about uh, witchcraft and traditionally, at least neo-witchcraft has a lot to do with the moon. Did you pick up on any of that? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think also this is very much a coming of age story in a pretty traditional way. So for me, also the new moon just kind of reminded me of like, all right, you know, we're starting on a new adventure. Like we're going to see the growth over a period of time sort of deal. So I thought it was just like a clever way to tie in the witchcraft with kind of the coming of age sort of elements.
0: I agree. Okay. And so it's been a few weeks since you've read this book. And um, I'm sure if anyone actually listens, they're going to want a summary. So I'm going to do my best. (laughs) Sounds great. So essentially we meet um, the main character who's, name is beatrice and she lives with her aunt she's an orphan as most heroes are she lives with her aunt and um they live alone kind of near new york city but not in new york city and she really wants something to happen to her and she is is she 18 at the start of the book yeah, like 17 or 18. Okay, yeah. So she's like right into that coming of age type of place. So she goes to New York City, hoping to be an apprentice at a tea shop. And she meets our two witches, Eleanor and Adelaide. She has some sort of weird vision-y thing with a ghost. <laughs> and um, We hear a lot about her kind of being the chosen one at this point, And we also... Get to end the the tale with two fairies who are going to give her some sort of prophecy dream. They give one to
1: Eleanor. That's how we're introduced to these two characters. Um, but they're talking about the fact that while they will eventually give Beatrice the the dream, it's not time yet. So we almost end on like a little bit of a cliffhanger because all of a sudden you're like, oh, like I wonder what this dream will be. Because there's such an intense emphasis, which we'll get into later, I'm sure. But there's such an intense emphasis on the specific timing and importance of dreams in this world.
0: Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And I I guess we will get into it later. But um, first, I wanted to ask you, because we had kind of been chatting about this over Facebook Messenger, as we do. And I wanted to ask you what you thought of the three main characters. Because you named two of them as being your favorite, but you did not mention the other <laughs>
1: My favorites were, um, I really liked Beatrice and I really liked Adelaide. I had a slightly harder time connecting with Eleanor, but I don't think that's because of the book. I think that's just because like, Eleanor is very different from who I am.
0: Um, Do you mean Adelaide is different? Adelaide's the one with one eye. Yeah, I know. Oh, okay. So Eleanor is different. Okay.
1: She's different from whom I am. I was thinking more along the lines of like, so Beatrice is someone that I can really identify with. I think as somebody who's like in their early twenties, I just graduated grad school and have no idea what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. Like I'm at the beginning to a certain extent of my coming of age story. So like I'm with her. Adelaide for me in a lot of ways kind of embodied some things I think I would like to be um and for me Eleanor to a certain extent I just I had a really hard time connecting with her I think it's potential that when we first started talking about this I had different feelings about it but I don't know the more I think about it the more I just found Eleanor to be kind of hard to connect with I found her a little bit cold to a certain extent which was weird because I think that Adelaide was meant to be the cold one but the more it sat with me the more I, I no longer felt that way
0: Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Did
1: I I, I tell you something different a few weeks ago? I'm sure I did.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, no, I think in the message, at least what I interpreted was that you didn't connect with Adelaide who was fun. It was funny to me because I think I kind of connect with Adelaide a lot. Not that I um, am. And not that I'm like her, but I just like her boldness and I like that she's all about the shock factor. Um, And I did kind of reading this connect you a lot with Eleanor because you're a very wise person and Eleanor is such she's she's very much the motherly archetype I feel like in this story.
1: Yeah I can see that and I mean I see similarities I guess to a certain extent between myself and Eleanor. I guess my problem was more like (sighs) it's hard to explain it was just something about the way her parts were written did not stick with me and connect with me emotionally in the same way as beatrice and eleanor's parts um because the other thing i think we need to mention about this novel is that it's multi-perspective and not just from our three main characters points of view but other people also get tossed into it
0: Men involved themselves with the business of making miracles, men in starched collars and suits, men in wool caps and dirty boots, from courtyards to boardrooms to the newsrooms of Park Row. We're during the industrial age in this book, and we're talking about witchcraft, which is kind of seen as an old-timey religion, but it's also in correspondence with women. And um, the industrial age, I feel like in this book, is painted as a very masculine sort of thing, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. You have any thoughts on that?
1: I mean, I guess just that I agree. Like, I, I think that this book, it is simultaneously about, like, coming into your own power and transcending boundaries, but I think that it's also still very much a gendered world. Um, I think yes. the difference is that, like, men's roles in this story are pretty you know traditionally men's roles and what we think of them historically and also as how we think about them today whereas women's roles are yes it's kind of about being domestic and stuff but because we follow three witches it's much more about like witchcraft and finding power in your own place I actually didn't really know how I felt about that to be perfectly honest
0: um I kind of you mean like as a As a writing style or about that premise?
1: No, I think as a premise, it's good. I think I just kind of wish that we saw a little bit more transcending of boundaries, like between the two worlds, if that makes sense. Because like, we see a lot of growth in our three female characters, but we also do get a man's perspective um, throughout the story as well. And like, he Mm -hmm. is just kind of evil the entire time like I think my problem was more that like the one dude character in this story is just painted out as to be a villain the entire time
0: you're talking about the reverend right I'm
1: talking about the reverend
0: yeah okay
1: I just kind of wish we could have seen like maybe one more character who is a little bit more nuanced in that regard um not to take away from the fact that like this is supposed to be a women's story about women's empowerment but I just I don't know. I I personally kind of like it when there's also more growth and and transcendence and kind of realizing the the wrong a little bit in male characters as well, if that makes any sort of sense.
0: No, I I definitely think it does. And we do meet later on outside of the section that we're talking about today. I feel like a positive male character, but we really don't I guess we kind of get to sit with him and we can talk about that on a future episode, but um yeah I think you're right that it is it's a very gendered sort of perspective and it doesn't do a lot of nuance with male archetypes
1: I think even to a certain extent with female archetypes it doesn't always either like there's growth in this story with our three female characters but there's also a certain level of like They kind of stay the same throughout the story as well, which I know is a complete juxtaposition as an opinion, but like, there aren't that many radical changes about the three of them. Um, Mm -hmm. It's more just kind of like the sort of growth where they, it's kind of like fate, right? Like they just kind of grow into who they were always supposed to be.
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that's a really interesting concept, because I think this book plays a lot with fate. We see um, Adelaide as the fortune teller. Mm -hmm. And it does kind of, not so much in this section, but I think in future sections, um, she kind of talks about fate and what that means to her. And as she's fortune telling in this section, she does say that the cards tell everyone what they already know which I kind of read as we are we, we we are in charge of our own destiny. But I also think Beatrice kind of plays with fate a little bit as well, simply by going to the city. Because I think without going to the city, she would have been stuck. She would have been stuck at her aunt's house forever. And I think that was kind of her trajectory until she made The Witch's Ladder. And I'm just going to go really quickly Back into when we meet Beatrice, right? We kind of see her, we see her at her aunt's house, and she's an orphan, and she has this very strange relationship with yeah. her aunt. Yeah, what what did you think about her relationship with her well, aunt? Let me back up for just
1: one second because I actually kind of disagree with something that you said like two sentences ago, which was that like Okay. <laughs> sorry, I should have I probably should have interrupted you then. But I kind of disagree that like her fate was sort of to be stuck at her aunt's house because I think it ties into her strange relationship with her aunt Um, because it's made very clear at the beginning of the book that Lydia didn't her Lydia is her aunt that she didn't want her to just be stuck there. She was very supportive of the idea of her going out and like making her own way in the world And, like, Lydia has always made her own way in the world and is a very, like, progressive thinking woman at the time. So, like, I think that due to that, like, yes, if she hadn't gone to New York, she wouldn't have found out she was the chosen one, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, I do think that there are implications there that Lydia was not going to make her stay at home or, like, get married or anything. I think that Beatrice's story could have been more unique and interesting. interesting I suppose no matter what direction she had taken
0: I could see that um and I'm going to sit with that right now because I don't know how to argue it with you at this time staying slightly spoiler free (laughs) so I do have thoughts about that though and I guess we'll hit on it um, in a future episode But let's talk a little bit about Beatrice, because she strikes me in the beginning as kind of a scientist character, which I really love, and I feel like the book relates witchcraft to science, and I wanted to know your thoughts on that.
1: Because I will say, that's not a perspective I ever thought about. I mean, yes, I think that to a certain extent, it did did relate witchcraft to science a little bit, but I never really thought of Beatrice as a scientist. (laughs) That's not something that I ever really like picked up on and thought about. Cause actually I think that one of the critiques of the book that I have is that, and it's already a pretty long book, right? It's she's hefty, but I do wish we got a little <laughs> bit more set up in the beginning um, of what Beatrice's life was like before she sets off on this grand adventure and who she was a little bit more. Cause I feel like I had a hard time getting a grasp of, of who she was really besides a girl who just wanted an adventure almost when she was still living with her aunt.
0: I agree with that. And that is my one main critique about Beatrice. I feel as though we didn't get um, a full perspective of her character as opposed to Adelaide and Eleanor, who I feel like we kind of know a little bit more right off the bat. And maybe that's because they're grown woman. Um, But Beatrice felt very much like, a maiden to me except for at the very beginning when we first meet her on page 13 I'm going to direct you there Um, you're very welcome she is talking about the Northwest Wind and she talks about the Scientific American and the Old Farmer's Almanac and um, she also keeps writing everything down and Maggie I don't know what your personal relationship is to witchcraft but um, I'm sure because you know me very well (laughs) I was very interested in witchcraft as a teenager. And I'm kind of becoming more interested into it. And and a lot of what they tell you in the beginner books about witchcraft and um, Wicca and paganism, whatever you want to call it, any sort of magical neo-pagan sort of thing, is that it is kind of like science and that Mm -hmm. it's all about knowledge. And there's a big focus on writing everything down which is interesting to me. So I saw that theme throughout and I don't know if that's just me reading into it, but she does, she writes everything down and she has the scientific American and the old farmer's almanac, but she also has, and I don't know if this is just like a product of the time. She also has her like miss madams. Oh, it's Madame Morrow's strange tales of Gotham. And she's into all of this, like, Book magic essentially, or like this mythology, um, or pseudoscience, which seems nowadays to be directly in opposition to what we think of as science.
1: Yeah. Now that we're now that we're back in that stage, I definitely get where you see where you see that. I think that for me, that aspect of it kind of fades away as the even just as this part goes on, um, she does continue to write everything down as far as i'm aware throughout the story but like we get less and less specific as to what she's writing down to a certain extent as a reader i think as the story continues so i think for me that that connection was not quite as strong Yeah,
0: yeah i think she's a very open character and does kind of realize that her life is going to change um I feel like she also, at the very beginning, during New Moon, when we first meet her, kind of fits the maiden archetype in some way, because she's, although she does go out and like physically make her adventure, she is kind of there, bored, waiting for life to happen to her, but it's a weird sort of flip, because she makes that, that witch's ladder, and I think that kind of plays back into fate, like, Beatrice is physically manifesting her fate, right? She makes that magic, but also we're dealing with magic and now she is binded to it um, by making that witch's ladder. That reading makes a lot of sense to me.
1: I think something though that I find interesting about Beatrice is um, circling back to kind of the conversation we were having about Lydia earlier is like, especially in the first part of the story, Mm -hmm. right? She has a very stilted relationship with her aunt where she knows her aunt cares for her, but like, Physical affection and things like that aren't a strong part of her life. So as she continues throughout this part, like yes, she's on this hunt for a future, but she is also very much on the hunt for a maternal figure. So like on page 124, it says Beatrice had found the woman's motherly concern for her was as natural as if they'd known each other for life. Um what's more, the kindly shopkeeper had readily offered her the position at the job, saying, I can't imagine anyone better suited for the job. So like part of this book as well, I think, is finding your place among other women in the world, Um, but specifically kind of locating a a mother figure, a maternal figure. And I think that it almost plays into the maiden archetype a little bit too much for me, because whereas um, I feel like in a typical, you know, sort of maiden archetype, yes, you're finding your way in the world, but you're also trying to find your man. And I think that flips it a little bit on its head here because instead of looking for a man, Beatrice is kind of looking for a mother figure, but it's also still kind of insta-love if that makes sense. Like these three characters fall together, especially Beatrice and Eleanor and kind of a mother daughter relationship extremely quickly, like unbelievably Mm -hmm. quickly, you know, especially given the fact that Eleanor is supposed to be really pissed off about the fact that, um, Adelaide had put out the the ad to have help in the shop anyways you know
0: do you think that's um and I guess we can't speak for all women but do you think that's typical of female relationships though to fall that quickly no no you don't you don't think it's typical (laughs) I guess I think I didn't I didn't pick up on the motherhood thing as much as you did, but I think that's a really great point because she is an orphan, and um, she does want a mother figure. But I did kind of pick up, I guess, as you were speaking, um, on the fact that they're looking for a coven, right? They're looking for yeah. like this supportive group of of females uh, to empower them and to incite power together, and um, I guess for you and i i think that's like i i guess i can't speak for you but for me that's something i really found in college which is when we met um among our friends right like we i feel like we felt very fast um and that was you know sometimes deeply problematic but like i formed family bonds with people very fast. And I think it served in many ways to give me a sense of belonging and empowerment, which I think is kind of what Beatrice is doing by going out yeah. into the world. I mean,
1: yeah. <laughs> it, it's just hard to talk about it, like <laughs> our personal lives into it, right? Because we had one very specific experience and like, For me, yeah, I did love, you know, all of my college friends right off the bat. But, like, that actual family bond for me took a lot longer to develop, I think, than it did um, for for other people in our group. It made it there eventually, obviously. But, like, I think for me, the part that's unbelievable isn't necessarily that Beatrice identifies so quickly with Eleanor. But it's that very quickly Eleanor feels the same way about Beatrice, When, like, ostensibly, you know, Eleanor and Adelaide already have each other, right? They're a small coven in that sense, but, like, they're a coven. And I just find it really, really interesting how quickly they are able to totally reshape their dynamic to, like, completely include Beatrice so that it's kind of, like, insta-love on all sides. I mean... I guess ultimately Adelaide, in this part you see, has some issues with Beatrice, kind of right off the bat. But like Eleanor is the one who starts off being against this, and then like instantly, instantly is just like, "Oh, okay, I was wrong. Never mind." (laughs)
0: You know, I think that part of that was because Eleanor had gotten the dream about Beatrice. Uh, yeah so she she got the dream about Beatrice and I think that's what really forms the like okay yes you have to be here and I think that relates a lot to another big element of witchcraft throughout this book which is the idea of woman's intuition Um, which I think may be positive but I'm not entirely sure because I feel like I'm a person who does not always trust my intuition. And sometimes that's like, or I guess I I analyze my intuition a lot. Like I'll feel it and because it's just always there and then I'll analyze it and then see whether or not it's reasonable. But this book I feel like is very much advocating. um, And I do think it's kind of an element that goes into witchcraft because I think Amy McKay must have known about modern day witchcraft and is playing a lot with that knowledge base. But she talks it, – it, it is very yeah. much pushing for, like, women to trust their intuition. And I don't know. Do you have any feelings about mm, that?
1: <laughs> I think I don't because I think I have a much different relationship with my personal intuition than you do. I do trust my gut pretty much on all circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, like, have I been wrong before? Yeah. Is it that often, frankly? No. You know? <laughs> So like, I don't necessarily have that analysis aspect. So for me, that part of the book was actually pretty believable and natural and really didn't stick out to me at all. Because I think that as a human, that's the way that I
0: operate in a lot of ways. Do you think that it is something we should be encouraging (laughs) women to to do more? Ah! To trust their intuition. Yeah,
1: I think think that women have a lot of doubt about themselves nowadays, you know, just kind of as a general blanket. Like, for example, so uh, as I just mentioned, I just graduated Mm -hmm. from grad school. And as part of that, I had to take an exit class that was essentially all about like, how to go and get a job. And something that they, my cohort was about 33 people. And it was like 28 women and, or women identifying people and five men or male identifying people it was drilled into our heads the entire time that studies have just shown and shown and shown now that unless a, a woman meets every single criteria for a job listing, for example, like every single one, they won't apply. Whereas for men, if they meet about half, usually they'll apply anyways. Yeah. Um, and that like women need to trust themselves and their abilities and like their gut instincts more. And that's just like one very specific example But I think that that sort of idea of, like, if I don't meet all of these criteria, like, to the T, if I'm not perfect for this position, that kind of, like, over analysis can be really damaging. Um, So I think that in situations like that, at the very least, it's it's better to trust your gut.
0: Part of that, though, is that a lot of women are going to feel more self-conscious because we are raised to feel self-conscious. And that's why we're not going to apply for... um, a job if we don't meet all the yeah, qualifications everything. and um, I'm in a very different field than you, obviously. And um, cause you, if, for people who are listening, Maggie is uh, going into arts management and curation of museums specifically. And I am a journalist and I've been working cause I didn't go to grad school. I've been working for a few more years um, out in the professional field. However, when I'm applying for jobs, I feel And I don't know if this is just like past experiences that maybe had some sort of sexism at play here, but I feel as though I'm not going to be qualified even if I meet all of the requirements Mm, or like if I don't, like, I just feel like I'll underperform. (laughs)
1: Yes, you should always be examining your feelings. But I do think that because there's like this superstition about even things like mother's instinct and stuff like that, that women are told a lot of the time that they should be analyzing their gut instincts and they should be really like mm-hmm. overthinking situations. And I think that moving away from that a little bit at least can be beneficial, not in all situations or circumstances and not yeah. for all people, but like, I don't know. I guess, I guess there's pros and cons to like believing in your gut instinct. I don't think there's like a cut and dry answer to be like, yeah, you know, like in every single situation, this is a good thing, you know?
0: I agree, and I also think, um, since we're using the book as kind of a metaphor for their idea of intuition and witchcraft as intuition, I think at least in Beatrice's case, we do kind of see both, like we learn, we, we see her developing her intuition. The space was filled with the smell of damp stone, reminding her of the smooth rocks she collected along the Hudson as a child. Standing on tiptoe, she shifted slightly to one side to allow a bit of sunlight to pass into the box. All at once, she could see the rosy, mottled surface of the obelisk. The graceful curve of a glyph was within her reach. She traced it with her fingers. The stone was cool and damp, and when she held her palm against it, she could feel a low, steady pulse. Was it the obelisk? Was it the train's engine preparing to depart, or was it just her heart racing with excitement? Giddy with wonder, she let out a soft laugh, which, to her surprise, echoed quite freely inside the dark space. It carried on long after it should have, fading into an eerie, undulating whisper. Closing her eyes, Beatrice leaned forward in an effort to discern its meaning. By nod of one, my spell's begun. By nod of two... It will come true. By not of three, so may it be. As it was coming, like, here is this, like, ancient, magical thing from Egypt. And we're bringing it in on a train, and it's going to, like, stand in industrial New York. And I felt like there was a lot of blend in this book between the old and the new. <laughs> wanting to share with you as I've been rereading this book in New York City there's a lot of stuff like Cleopatra's Needle and I didn't really know it was real while I was reading this until I read it the second time and then looked it up and I'm living in New York City for anyone who might be listening there's a lot of Greek mythos Mm. Kind of exhibited in New York City, like on the top of Grand Central. I mean, you you grew up near the city, so you might know this already. But on the top of Grand Central, they have Hermes and they have Athena, and then they have the dude who I think Aphrodite was like supposed to be married on and cheated on. uh, Is that the dude? How you
1: say his name? (laughs) I just read a book about this. Oh God!
0: Yeah, it is the dude.
1: I I know what you mean. He's, (laughs) He's the god of the forge.
0: Yes. And And that example just comes to me because I literally see that every day as I'm going to work. But there is a lot of stuff like that in New York City that I have been noticing. We have like Atlas holding the earth somewhere. So it's interesting to note that that was something they were bringing in, in part to scandalize Uh, the public.
1: But I was kind of bothered by the fact that it was specifically like an African and Egyptian artifact that was being taken and brought brought to the United States specifically as like in a, like to make it feel exotic, essentially, you know? Uh, And the book doesn't really dive into that, which I found to be a little bit unfortunate just because like, yeah, at the time they probably wouldn't have, but this book is so progressive and in a lot of ways, so outside the norms already that I kind of wish we could have, at least mentioned or acknowledged that fact a little bit but like that's also me coming from my specific field and like knowing so many issues about the way like these artifacts are being treated and how different or how difficult it is to repatriate them anyways so like I was wondering what your what your thoughts were about that idea
0: so I it did not raise mm-hmm. a red flag for me um probably because I'm uh, I don't know I wasn't thinking about it. And now that you say it, it does seem suspicious to me. Mm -hmm. However, I think reading it when I think reading, like it is here, it's in New York city, Cleopatra's needle. It's, I don't know where actually it might be in central park. (laughs) I think I do think it would have been interesting had she dealt into the appropriation aspect of it for me as somebody who is studying modern day witchcraft, um, some of the things that is talked a lot within the community right now is magical appropriation. And I felt like that was more at play here because we see the genie, the genie or the djinn. And we also, I guess the idea that it has ancient magic could be slightly appropriative. And that did raise some flags on me, but I did not um, take the time to really fully think it out. So we've
1: got a character with a disability. Like we've got a whole subsection of things happening here, but Mm -hmm. it specifically doesn't address race at all. And I think that when you have a book that that's, that's like this intersectional that specifically doesn't address race, Race. and then also uses like an African artifact. Like for me, I was a little bit like, oh, this seems like a really glaring hole
0: you know yeah no I agree and yeah I agree I I don't know I don't know what she specifically could have done because I don't have a lot of history on that time but I do think during my original read I was noticing Mm -hmm. on that um I assume yeah. that all of these characters that we meet are white because it's not noted otherwise. And I think at this time period, it would have been noted had they been a person of color simply because we had things like segregation going on. Um, So that is that is really interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I can speak on that, but... That is probably a flaw of the book. It's not diverse in terms I of race. At the very
1: least, like a J.K. Rowling sort of situation, where like you're you're going back and trying to like fix some holes, you know.
0: I mean, I know a lot of people have a lot of feelings on J.K. Rowling, but um, I think it would have been more that it would have been even more problematic if she were to do that, simply because she is dealing with a period piece, and J.K. Rowling was dealing, yeah. Um, with grace in the wizarding society are supposed to be progressive at least um I'm a big Harry Potter nerd so it's supposed to be progressive and she's dealing with a slightly modern era like it was modern yeah. at the time so it wasn't there was not um, yeah, yeah. institutionalized I think, segregation I think
1: it kind of would have been I don't want to say easy cuz like writing anything isn't easy but like it wouldn't have been that yeah. big of a stretch you know Like, because there are so many things here that are already just, like, like, it's a very modern on a period piece.
0: No, I agree. I agree. And I don't mean, I didn't mean that to say that, like, she couldn't include diversity because I think she definitely could have and it would have been reasonable. But I think if she were to go ahead afterwards and be like, oh, well, this character was Black all along and it was just, like, never brought up or talked about, I think that would have been problematic. Like, whereas J.K. Rowling can be like, oh yes, I did have a Jewish wizard. He had this name. <laughs> yeah, um, I think and it is still kind of today, problematic, I guess. Problematic. I don't
1: know. I going to say, because we're already at 48 minutes. Um, can we pivot for just a second to talk a little bit about Sister Piddock in this part? Because we haven't gotten to any of her talk about her yet sorry you can probably hear my dog walking in the background um we haven't talked about her yet and for me she was a really difficult character to contend with I mean as she was supposed to be but I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about her so I I I wanted to know how you felt about her
0: have you read Handmaid's Tale
1: yes but not for many years
0: okay well um I've read it and I've recenter I guess and I'm, I'm also watching the show but she seemed very much like a Serena Lovejoy or um, Aunt Lydia sort of character like a force of the patriarchy like somebody who is so um, oppressed that she is going to push her oppression onto other women and I think this is something we see in real life um, not to get too political but you know what this is a feminist podcast so fuck it and um, this is something, like, mo- the majority of white women in America, the majority of white-educated women anyway, did vote for Trump. And kind of recently, I ended up going to a pro-life rally to interview some people there.
1: Hello. Okay, so we were talking about Sister Pidog, and you were about to talk about um, how she has many kind of modern-day contemporaries.
0: I went to... um I went to a pro-life rally, and it was really big, yeah. and it was in New York City, and a lot of them kind of saw the ultimate part of being a woman to be motherhood. I think I'm still processing the feelings about it, even though it was like a month a month ago, and I wrote about it already, <laughs> but uh, I feel like these they were all very nice women, and they were very nice to me. Um, And I think whatever you want to do with your own body is fine, and it's fine if you are opposed to abortion, but I don't think it is okay to force your choices onto anyone else. And I think the problem that I am still kind of contending with when I interviewed these women was that even when I asked about contraception's I mean, most people did support contraception, but I, I just, one woman in particular, I was talking to her and she identified herself as a pro-life feminist, but she talked about abby, I can't say it right, but it's called Abby Fortient, Abby Facient birth control. And I didn't know what that was at the time. So when I went home to write my article, I looked it up and this is something that people use to describe essentially any type of birth control. And... It has the word abort in it, and I feel like it's really misleading to a lot of people. It implies that – it Mm. it means that she doesn't support any birth control other than natural family planning, which is essentially doing sex during certain times of the month, which is not – I mean, that's fine if you want to use that as your form of birth control, but it is not, um, the safest method. And if you use it, you should probably use it with another form of birth control to be safe if you don't want children. And I just, these were all very nice women who treated me super nicely. But I felt as though they were so deeply ingrained in these ideas that were inherently harmful to women. Because I'm sorry, but forcing a woman to have a child is inherently harmful for her if she does not want it. Childbearing is horrible from every woman that I've asked. Like, it is a horrible experience in a lot of ways. Like, physically birthing a child, it rips your body apart. Um, Not to say that being a mother isn't a great experience, but you should not force somebody to become a mother, because that is your entire life. And women do still have to do the majority of child rearing. So anyway, it's just, it's this idea, there are women out there who I think have been so ingrained with the patriarchy, that in order to live up to the standard that we have for good girls, will push down other women in order to get there. And I think as somebody who surrounds myself with people like you and with my other female friends, it's just so hard for me to understand because so many of my female relationships are positive. And that's not to say that I haven't dealt with like a mean girl every now and then, but I feel like like when that happens, it's usually some sort of like ingrained patriarchy sort of thing you're just kind of saying then in relation
1: to the story that you view sister Pidoc as kind of being one of those sorts of people
0: but yeah obviously she is like so ingrained with patriarchy right that she is willing to tear down other women and it's because she feels empty in her life like her husband doesn't pay enough attention to her they say in this part of the book and um and she her children are grown, or she doesn't have children? I can't quite remember. But she just doesn't have a lot else going in her life right now. so she she turns to God, and this preacher is I, I don't know, the the form of Christianity that she is um, turning to and that is being pushed on her right now is inherently patriarchal and it's deeply problematic and it talks about women as being like sluts and witches and so she is tearing down other women in order to be this good girl and to please this uh reverend that she has a crush on or something like it, it is for a man yes very much a
1: crush on yeah i i i agree with you i think the place where i disagree a little bit just in relationship as to how she's handled in the story is I wish she was handled with more nuance because she's kind of just painted out to be a villain a lot of the time. Um, And she's really painted to have some very like stereotypical, like negative female qualities in the sense that like, she's a busybody. Like I think it would be fair to describe her as being kind of bitchy. Like, She's just not very, her portrayal is unsympathetic. And I think that the part that makes me really struggle with it is that I think that the author intends to make her a little bit more sympathetic by talking about all of the things she's lacking in her life and things like that. Like, like you pointed out the fact that her husband doesn't pay enough attention to her. Um, But like, I wish she was less one-dimensional I think that even if she was going to be one of the villains of the story, she would have been a more compelling and more effective villain if she was less one-dimensional. Because I think that even just relating to the story that you just shared, like you found lots of positive qualities in the women that you were talking to at that rally, right? Like there are no positive qualities about Sister Piddock. Like I think that Adelaide is a really complex character. I think Eleanor is a really complex character I know that you might disagree with this a little bit, but I found Beatrice to be pretty complex, even if not necessarily as complex as the other two. And Sister Piddock is just like the only woman in the story who's just very much one-dimensional. She feels like just flat out a plot device in a lot of ways, rather than like an actual player in this, which I think is really great because she's she has her whole own perspective in this story, you know? But like you don't glean anything from it except for the fact that that, like, we've been saying, you know, her husband doesn't pay enough attention to her. She has a really deep relationship with religion, but it's never really dissected as to why and, like, why the specific form of Christianity. And, like, she's got a crush on this reverend. So, like, all you really know about her throughout the entire story, but especially in this part, is that, like, she is a deeply religious person who deeply, deeply hates witches and for some reason has decided that she must go on a crusade, essentially. You know, so like her motivations just aren't. She has nothing more than that going on for her.
0: I get that. And I think I would argue, too, that the Reverend is even a little bit more dimensional than she is because we get to see. Yeah, we get to see more about his motivations. Do you think Do you think that um, Amy McKay is writing this? because she is older than us right she's probably like a gen x person i would say i don't actually know but she's not a millennial do you think that she's writing it from another perspective in which maybe a lot of people don't view um or or aren't taught to view women as complexly let me let me rephrase that so one of my favorite people one of my favorite writers uh is Amy Sherman-Palladino, who writes Gilmore Girls, which I love. Um, And she is deeply, deeply problematic as a writer. Um, And she has been interviewed, and in her interview, she has talked about how um, no other woman have helped her advance in her career. And I think that that is something I've heard echoed a lot from other women. Um, I don't think there is as much I I think there's more of that of that patriarchal uh, need to oppress other women perhaps in earlier generations and I wonder if maybe she's just not thinking of it as nuanced because maybe she's experienced more sister Piddocks in her life than you and I have
1: I think if that were true for me, that the rest of the book would be less good (laughs) because she does, she really, for the most part, like we've talked a bit about our, a, a bit about of our, oh my God, I can't speak. We've talked a little bit about our criticisms of the book, but for the most part, this is a really positive portrayal of female friendship and female relationships on all levels and females helping each other. And it is in a lot of ways, a very, um intersectional diverse book um even if it's not perfect and i think that if that perspective were really true then like the rest of the book would just not really follow that track but i do think that something that i wasn't thinking about that you were talking about is that potentially she's trying to paint sister piddock as someone who would have had that experience you know this idea of like not understanding Ooh, sorry um Yeah I don't know I guess I just don't think that like from an author perspective if that was actually how she was thinking about it like that like the rest of the book would be as it is if that
0: makes sense. That definitely makes sense um because we were talking about Sister Piddock can we talk a little bit about the reverend and his ah, the reverend um here I wonder if I might it might take me a while to find, but I think I have a quote. Well, I don't know. His whole his whole idea about witchcraft, like it's deeply, deeply sexual. And we do get to see in this part his torture and um did it feel very like almost SM to you the torture because he is a man of god and he's he's not supposed to be getting sexual pleasure about it but like it i feel like it was definitely meant to feel sexual
1: i think that was part of the point to be perfectly honest I think that like his relationship with violence toward himself is kind of interesting um because he becomes a very violent character throughout the book like more and more violent but i think it's interesting that that violence is also turned upon himself Like, I think that that is something that makes him... I mean, A, it makes it more religious, definitely. But, like, I think it does make him a little bit more nuanced as a character. Because it would be really straightforward, I think, for, like, the violence from his end to just be towards women. And it's not. It's also turned on himself in the sense that, like, he cannot accept his own sexual desires. Like, he doesn't really know what he's up to in a lot of ways. And I think that to a certain extent, he's just like this really pent up person who has no healthy releases and just like explodes in the most extreme sort of
0: way. This is probably obvious and very general, but do you think this is an example of how harmful patriarchy is to everybody?
1: I think it is obvious, yeah, but I do wish it was done a little bit better. (laughs) It gets so steeped in violence towards women that i think that like this is really the only part of the book where you end up seeing those kinds of implications and i think it's also difficult because there's more male characters in the story um not that you necessarily see their perspectives but of them all there's only like one good guy i think that that theme of the fact that the patriarchy is harmful to everyone could have been better developed but i wish that if that was something she was going with it was more brought out because in this part of the story with his like self harm, um, I think you're right, it is like an obvious theme, but then as you move throughout the book, it just gets so muddled and so lost in everything else that the Reverend's up to that it's like the point almost becomes moot, you know?
0: Lesbians, <laughs> yay. For a few blissful weeks, in the spring, they'd carried on an affair, quietly hidden from the rest of the world, even Adelaide. All through the month of May, it'd been flesh against flesh, honey sucked off fingers and breasts, silk sashes wrapped around wrists, feathers plucked from bonnets for tickling thighs and ribs. This must remain a secret, Lady Hibiscus had insisted. Just between us two. so let's talk about lesbians i have i've written down in my notes maggie lesbians in all caps with four exclamation points (laughs) page 78 lesbians (laughs) what does a lesbian relationship look like in this time period and do you think she did it well that's kind of hard for me to answer as someone
1: who's not a historian except for to say that lesbian relationships were happening and I think that in a lot of ways they did look like this in the sense that like they were seen as negative things. They were to be kept under wraps um, and things like that. I do think the book gives it a little bit of a modern twist with like um, the way that they meet and things like that. And both characters are pretty bold about it, you know? Um, But like, I just appreciated that. I really enjoyed that part. Because I think for me, that was an area of like, representation that I wasn't expecting to see in this story was like, this lesbian who is comfortable with who she is, um, and is really heartbroken through a lot of the book, but like, is able to pull through that and like, still be a strong and powerful woman when it needs to be. Um, I don't know, for me, that that aspect of the book worked really well.
0: I love that. And, um, I don't know how it plays necessarily into the larger theme of the book, but I thought it was, I thought it was important that even Adelaide couldn't know this partially because I feel like that's harmful to Eleanor, but also because I feel like it makes it more intimate and wonderful. And then I also loved how it's talking about May and it talks about, um, for those that don't know, in a lot of modern witchcraft practices, May is the month where we have Beltane, which is like one of the neo-pagan traditions that, I mean, it's May Day, so obviously it does have its roots historically um, within uh, histor- historical religious practices, but it's, it's all about sex and... Um, <laughs> the theme of honey is a big thing within Bellatine and bees are really big. And so I just loved that that played in that she like takes that and puts that in there. Um, yeah, I don't know. What were your thoughts on the secrecy? I, I guess even from Adelaide.
1: I think the secrecy makes it more realistic and also bittersweet. As far as I'm aware, Eleanor is like out to Adelaide, generally speaking. Um, but like, just keeps this affair secret. And I think that I really agree with you that like, on the one hand, it's probably kind of indicative of the fact that like, this is a harmful thing. And like, even from Adelaide, this isn't necessarily like an accepted practice sort of deal. But on the other hand, I think that the way it's written about in this book makes it feel very intimate and very just like sensual and sexy and things like that. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, right? Like, I think that the idea of having a secret romance or a secret lover sort of deal is prevalent throughout fiction with all kinds of relationships. It's just about whether... I think the harmfulness aspect comes from whether or not, like, she had to keep it a secret specifically because she was with a lady who was married or, like, about to be married Or if Eleanor happened to be straight or bi or pan and she had been with a man, if like that same level of secrecy would have been necessary. And I think that the answer for Eleanor is, I don't know. Like, cause on the one hand, I think it's written that part of the reason that Eleanor keeps it quiet is because this lady actually like means something to her for the first time in a really long time. And like, that's the aspect that she wants to keep close and quiet but then you also have to just like contend with the fact that this relationship would have been frowned upon, you know, and especially at this part in the book, we don't really know how Adelaide feels about the fact that Eleanor's a lesbian, you know, like we just kind of get the feeling, I would say that she is aware of that fact.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I also wonder too, though, if the secrecy and this, this felt like a very modern day, I don't know. It's it felt relevant to today, to what I hear from a lot of my friends who are in the dating world right now. But I I wonder if it affected her ability to grieve, and it just it felt like a lot of um, my friends who go through like breakups from non relationships, if that makes sense. Like I just had a friend who went through that recently. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Like, do you think it does affect? her ability to grieve because it wasn't a official relationship and it wasn't recognized by society.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's also just the fact that she had to deal with the grief by herself more than anything. Like, I think that a lot of parts of a breakup, no matter how quote unquote official the relationship is, is like that idea of being able to sit down and decompress and like talk through what went wrong with your friends and things like that. And like, she doesn't have that. So she's just kind of like heartbroken, like really, really heartbroken. So going back to part of the dreams issue we were mentioning earlier, part of the reason that um, I think their names are Honey and Twitch have to embed a dream in like very specifically in Eleanor's subconscious is because she's so heartbroken that she stopped dreaming for a little while. Like this heartbreak is so intense, it disconnects her from a, a part of herself for a little while And I think that that's the part where, like, if she had been able to talk to even just Adelaide about it, that, like, things would have been different. Purdue, her bird, is very concerned about this. Like, that's the first thing we get from his sort of, like, point of view, is that he is very upset and concerned for her, like, mental and emotional well-being, and also for, like, her witchcraft abilities, that she's not able to remember her dreams and share with him anymore
0: the princess who wished to be a witch long ago a beautiful princess named odeline wanted to become a witch her mother the queen had died when she was born and aside from the queen's jewels and robes all odeline had left of the woman were the precious books she'd collected in her library Whenever she grew tired of listening to her five quarrelsome brothers bicker, which was often, she'd steal away to the library to sit and read and ponder.
1: So I think that for me, and like these might be really obvious takeaways, but like the story does a couple of things. The first is that it sheds light on why in this world specifically, the witchcraft aspect is. needs to be hidden, and things like that. The second is it's supposed to be the origin story for Purdue, um, which I think is important, because there's lots and lots of, like, explicit and kind of implied hints throughout the story that Purdue is a lot more than he seems, which is why I was saying earlier that, like, something that bothered me about this book was that there was no like follow through on that theme. Purdue is important, but he doesn't end up being as important as I think it's foreshadowed in the beginning. If that makes sense. I think there's also a level of, um, this story signifies her, Eleanor's relationship with her mother. Um, In the sense that, like, her mother is not afraid of showing her her own power, Um, but also showing her that, like, just because you have power doesn't mean that, like, things are all going to work out, right? So, like, Odeline has this power. Odeline is a very empowered woman, but she still gets tricked, you know? She still ends up in a marriage that, like, doesn't start well. Um And it's only through using her own power and her own strength and her own knowledge that she gets through that really terrible sort of situation. you know, so I think that there's like a level of this where it's like Madame St. Clair is not afraid to show Eleanor both the good and the bad in life, which I think is supposed to really highlight who Eleanor becomes throughout the story. Eleanor. Adelaide a little bit more so, but Eleanor is pretty pessimistic about a lot of things. Um, neither Eleanor nor Adelaide are the most optimistic humans in the world by any means. That's very much left to Beatrice. But I think that this story specifically really kind of shows the reason that Eleanor is, like, so sure of herself. I think there's a level of, like, the person you rely on is you and your strength you know because I think that that's something that as close as Eleanor is to Adelaide and as close as she gets to Beatrice like I think at the beginning of the story that's something she still struggles with especially because Eleanor in a lot of ways takes care of Adelaide and I think that in certain ways their relationship ends up being very unequal because even when Adelaide is genuinely trying to help her very beginning of the book she puts in the ad to get help Her mindset from what we see from her perspective is literally just that she wants to help Eleanor. And when Eleanor gets wind of this, she accuses Adelaide of only thinking of herself. She doesn't think that anyone, anyone really has her best intentions at heart, no matter what the circumstances, no matter how close they are together. So I think for me, this story kind of like, represents a little bit of the seeds of that feeling in
0: Eleanor that we see in this part of the book. I didn't pick up on that like Eleanor's need to be solitary um and that's that's really sad that she doesn't feel like she can open up to anyone.
1: Even with Lady Hibiscus like there's always part of herself she's hiding from all of the people in her life until Beatrice kind of comes in and is able to sort of open doors for both Adelaide and Eleanor.
0: Can we talk a little bit about you touched on Eleanor and Adelaide's relationship and how I think for me reading this and I really like Adelaide because she is such an imperfect character and I really um, identify with those imperfections, I think. Yeah. But she, I feel like she, yes, she was thinking of Eleanor, but like she doesn't ever pitch in with, a lot of what Eleanor does and I think part of that is like the witchcraft stuff but like she doesn't help with the housework or anything and so I do think she was being kind of selfish and she is a very selfish character
1: oh yeah absolutely I do think though that like Eleanor's characterization of that specific situation is a little bit unfair um just because in Adelaide's mind at the very least from what we are told from her perspective She was trying to get someone to help Eleanor and like, should that person probably have been Adelaide herself? Yes. But I think that also touches on a more interesting part of Adelaide's character, which is that Adelaide does not consider herself to be a witch. She has weird like relationships with that word and with the implications of that all throughout the story. And she gets very bristly when Eleanor just sits there and is like, you're a witch, you know? Um, so I think that part of that and like Adelaide's trepidation and helping with the shop to a certain extent has to do slightly less with being a selfish character which she definitely is that plays out so much in- later in the story but I think that it also comes with the fact that like putting herself fully into the shop and things like that means acknowledging this thing about herself that she doesn't know or understand and is also really frustrated by because she can't contact the ghost of her mother even though her mother is there all the time and like it feels like a failure to her it feels like a block I think to a certain extent it makes her feel like a fraud
0: witches see to things best sorted by magic sorrows of the heart troubles of the mind regrets of the flesh this is what we do that who you are has kind of owned the whole idea that she's like slightly selfish and unkempt and I, I think that's like very much a part of her identity and being a witch not only makes I don't think it's the power necessarily that she she feels um threatened by but also a witch in the way that Eleanor is a witch is somebody who is almost loving in some ways like does take care of other people I have this quote from page 27. So part of it, I think, is like a witch knows who they are and a witch also is helping these things that Adelaide just does not feel like she is qualified to help with. She doesn't like have any faith in her abilities, like you were saying.
1: I think there's also an interesting aspect of it, of something that like neither of us has really touched upon yet, which is that at this point, Adelaide... Um... Has a very interesting relationship with herself. And I feel trepidatious talking about this prospect because this is something that, like, I have no personal experience with. And I, just like I, just like with the race conversations we were having, like, I can't comment on this from like this is good or bad representation standpoint. It's just something that I've noticed, which is that Adelaide has been uh, attacked with acid at this point in the book. And she used to be a very, very beautiful woman who is accepted everywhere she went simply from the fact that she was beautiful. Um, Or at the very least, no one batted an eye at her, so to speak. Uh, And that is no longer true for her at this point in the book. So I think there's also an interesting conversation about like having to hide uh, or like worry about how you're presented in society. Because like Eleanor's, thing that she has to hide from society ostensibly right the fact that she's a lesbian she has more control over whether people know that than Adelaide does about people actually looking at her face um so I think there's also an aspect of reluctance to like take up yet another mantle that could get her criticized and get her ostracized and things like that
0: that makes a lot of sense and I also think it's important that like Adelaide has always kind of had to hide herself or at least like use her disadvantages um, in creative fa- fashions, like even before the acid attack, because she did start off poor and she was sold by her mother. Um, I don't remember to who, but she was sold by her mother away. And I'm, yeah, against her will. So like she is, and, and we, this is a time, not that classism doesn't exist today because it does, but like this is a time where i think class is a lot more pres it's it's more visible Cla- yeah yeah it's it's just something that you can't hide well and she's been able to it sounds like at the time um that this acid attack occurs she's been able to kind of transcend uh her class a little bit like she's been working really hard and she's a woman alone in the 1800s. Like that's gotta be hard to transcend class in that way, to start from nothing and then like work her way up.
1: I think also to be clear, the difference in class in this situation is that I think that class is really visible in a lot of ways in our society too. I think it's not talked about. I think that class was more openly spoken about, even if it was in a disparaging way in this time
0: period, than it is now just to be clear you know Um. I agree you can see it but I also think too like I grew up on food stamps and that's not not to say that I was like super duper poor or anything um but you know like I grew up below the poverty line and I always had a house but it would be hard for people to know that simply by talking to me because I still have access to education that people in different classes classes who were above me had as well exactly I just think it's one of those things where it's like class at this specific
1: time period was talked about more openly between people than it is now so it's not that class now is an invisible problem so much as it's like a problem that a lot of people are just silent on for various different reasons. Also, you mentioned Moth earlier, but we didn't explain to listeners who might not have read the book. Moth is Adelaide's given name, the name she was given by her mother. Adelaide is the name she chooses to go by. So to a certain extent, like Adelaide is always hiding part of her identity um, for various different reasons, you know?
0: Also, because we mentioned uh, the oblique, and I'm probably not the most qualified to talk about this because I don't know a whole bunch about it. But what do you feel about the whole thing? Her mother—they—they they use the word to describe her mother, and um, Moth or Adelaide was also like child, is what they say. And I know that that is an offensive term now but I don't know too much about why
1: I don't really either I except for the fact that like I just know it's a slur and something I should never say to be perfectly honest and I also know that like I think that um it's a little bit more complicated in the United States because true kind of Romani culture uh you know the heartbeat of it is in Europe so like a lot of those I'm I'm willing to bet that like the use of the word here is a misuse that would have been used at the time to just describe like a nomadic person who's kind of moving from thing to thing rather than trying to describe the fact that these two women were like of true Romani culture.
0: But do you feel like it was wrong for it to be used in the book or do you think it's do you think it's okay because of the time period it was and what do you feel about the mother playing into that archetype. I mean, I guess neither of us are probably qualified enough to talk about it because I personally, I don't know that much about it at all. I'm not European. Um, I don't know much about the struggles of the Romani people, but I was curious to see. And I don't know how those translate,
1: how their struggles translate to Romani people who live in the United States. Um, I think that like what you're asking though begs a larger question as well of like removing the n-word from huckleberry finn and things like that you know like that is the word that would have been used in 1880 but also this book is very progressive in a lot of ways but also i think the author was probably tried trying to get across like a very specific feeling so i don't know I don't know, like, to be perfectly honest with you, like, I just flat out don't know. I know that if I was writing this book, I probably wouldn't use that word, to be perfectly honest. Um, But, like, I just, I think, like, with so many other issues of representation, as, like, a, a person who has absolutely, not even just no experience with it, but, like, a very limited knowledge, like, I really don't feel comfortable commenting on it
0: to be honest okay I do think it's important that we brought it up though even if we don't know what's going on and um if anybody does listen to this and wants to talk to us about it and let us know their perspective um and if they are more educated please do and someday I will put in an email address in here at the end of the episode so you can definitely email us about I also want to say that like that's an area of
1: history and like issue in the world that i'm aware that i need to be more educated about um so i think it's like really interesting that it's brought up and i'm i really do want to learn more and have a more educated opinion about it but i think your point stands in the sense that like this, this is a hot topic in general in literature in regards to like censorship and what words should be used and what words shouldn't be used and how that relates to period pieces that's like this insane ongoing conversation right now <laughs> like I think part of the problem is that to a certain extent, there is no consensus.
0: I want to know what you're reading, first of all. On the podcast, I want to know what you're reading.
1: (laughs) I just finished yesterday, um, The City of Blades by Robert Jackson Bennett, which is the second book in a series that I very much enjoy. Um, He is swiftly becoming one of my favorite writers. And just today I started, but I'm like barely into the age of miracles by Karen Thompson Walker, but I'm really excited to read it because I just read her new novel, the dreamers earlier this year. And it was like one of the best books I've ever read. She does like speculative dystopian fiction in a very literary way, um, but it's way more focused on, like, the human relationships that you have through tough times. Um, and it's just very good. So The Age of Miracles, the premise of it is what happens when the Earth's rotation slows down.
0: Oh, that's pretty cool. Okay, I'm... All right. Yeah. I just wanted to ask that because I know that you're probably going to be reading something different every week. And um, (laughs) I want to build my reading list. Um, Right now, I am reading two books that I've been reading for a while because I've had craziness going on right now. But um, I am finishing up Not My Sidekick or Not Your Sidekick, which is a young adult uh, novel. And it's a future novel. And I was reading it for my feminist book club in New York City, which you can find on Meetup. And if you live in New York City, you should totally join because it's the best experience ever. Um, And it's about a girl who lives in like this world in the future. And there are superheroes. And um, we were reading it for Pride Month. So it's pretty good. I didn't like it at first because I felt felt like it was too simplistic, but I had a friend who read it and really loved it and thought it was super cute. So I like have been piling through and now I'm really invested. And um, yeah, I definitely think it's worth a read. I'm also reading Queering the Tarot, which I was reading for another book club. Um, and that is interesting. I think it's, it's very much, I think, a book that's like not one that I just want to go ahead and sit down and read it's one that maybe I want to like do tarot and then come back to because it's it's like an instructional book it just essentially goes over each card and lets you know about how it could relate to um queer people which is interesting very cool
1: that sounds like an awesome read I totally get what you mean though about like This is my problem with nonfiction all the time where like I'm really interested in the premise and I really like I want the knowledge that's in the book to be in my head, but I have such a hard time to convince myself to just sit down and read it.
0: I also wanted to ask you what your personal and this is something I'm going to do every podcast unless you absolutely hate it. What your personal homework based off of this section of the book is? I think for me, I've been thinking a lot about it. But I think because I am interested in witchcraft, um, and this is depending on whether or not I find out whether it is appropriative, because I know that sometimes they can be. But I think I want to look and learn more about witches ladders and um, how to maybe do a spell on it. Do you have anything that you uh, took away from this book that you would like to maybe implement before we next talk about the the other chapters of the book?
1: of covered it already just a little bit but like I feel like just the conversation we had about like the Romani culture and things like that and especially how it relates to the United States like I think I want to look more into that because I think that it would also shed a lot of light like the implications of that word and whether or not it should have been used in this context I think regardless will still shed a lot of light into Adelaide's character So I think that that's something that I would probably want to look into a little bit more as we're kind of like continuing to read the book. It really is a small mention, but then at the same time, like fortune telling in general is something that I know is very strongly ascribed to Romani culture. So like and that stays throughout the book. So I think I'd like to read up a little bit more on that if I have the time. I won't lie, though, it might not be before next episode, just because, as was previously mentioned, I have a sick dog who's recovering from surgery right now, so, like, I'm a little preoccupied.
0: You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, And it's by the days. See you soon. And remember to read rebelliously. Oh, it's so fun. And if you uh, smoke it, you get a little bit high, apparently. And it's like legal because they haven't, I don't know. It's like, it's a very mild high. You just can't have a lot or you'll die.